everybody. Welcome back to Episode 11, Part 2, New Scotland Yard and the 7-7 London train bombings. And obviously this included a bus. 53 people killed, over 700 injured. So in this next part, we're going to get into it with Alan and Graham about a lot of the details behind it, what New Scotland Yard was doing, and their counterterrorism command across all of the UK, how they were tracking down leads, and then the follow-on attacks that happened two weeks later. Fortunately, those weren't successful. We'll find out why and why the construction of the detonators made these bombs fail. Make sure you also go visit us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got a ton of content there. New stuff coming out every week, no matter which level you're at. Evil is coming, uh, Guardian of the Realm or Warden of the Throne. We have got a lot of good stuff for you. Make sure you also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game of Crimes Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Game of Crimes. And also check out our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We put a lot of our content there in our uh, mail list, so make sure you join us there. So now, let's get back into the next part, Episode 11, Part 2, New Scotland Yard and the 7-7 London train bombings. Des- describe describe also, um, r- real quick, Steve, I'm sorry, um, wh- what was the concern about a follow-on attack? I mean, had you did you have any indication of who was responsible at that time? And then also, what was your level of concern is that uh, this may be the first stage of a two-stage, you know, uh, attack of some kind? Uh, the concern, obviously, is always going to be, is this the start of a campaign? Uh, so you had four people who were dead they were identified fairly early on from documentation that they had on them um and the other thing about this was this was the first suicide attack in the uk it hadn't happened prior to this there had been a number of uk citizens involved in suicide attacks or attempted suicide attacks elsewhere people like richard reed the shoe bomber Right. Uh, Wasn't there a bombing at a Israeli um, yeah. cafe or? A- uh, there was one in Tel Aviv called Mike's Place. There was a right. a bar immediately next door to the American embassy when it was on the beach in Tel Aviv, and uh, there was a suicide bomb uh, went in there and detonated a device. And he was from North London. There was a, a, a another person with him who ended up dead, who was from North London as well. So these people were about, but it had never happened in the UK. And due to the locations of them, it looked like the most likely scenario is that they had actually travelled to King's Cross Station, which is a real big transport hub, and all the lines and the bus route involved uh, actually went through King's Cross. So the theory was that they'd travelled to King's Cross and gone from there. And actually, the explosion just short of Russell Square Station, the train hadn't got to the first station, if that was the case. And people were saying, oh, look, it, this one could well be an, what we would call an own goal, where they'd accidentally blown themselves up. And this was an evidential opportunity. Uh, and then the realisation suddenly happened that, no, that's not the case at all. This was a suicide attack. So then the object of the exercise is, is this a ongoing uh, campaign and do we have the totality of the conspiracy uh, with the dead people? Uh, and uh, it's all off from there. 
so Graham, uh, I'm sorry, Steve, you had a question. Sorry, I interrupted earlier. Follow up. I was just going to say the uh, I, I read one report, a study of the response over there um, during this, you know, during these incidences, and you know what's monumental is who's in charge. You know, believe it or not, you think that's pretty simple, but when you've got multiple agencies and, you know, first-line responders coming out and, and fire and rescue and police and, and intelligence services and everybody, but it looked like, based on the report I read, you guys had your ducks in a row that after 9-11 in the United States in 2001, you know, you guys took the bull by the horns and you developed a plan and that plan was implemented and it was... it. You know, studies are very critical, especially after the fact. You know, you got your your Monday morning quarterbacks that tell you what you did right and what you did wrong, and uh, it looked like you, you guys did a lot of a lot, if not everything, right. You know, unfortunately, you didn't have the intelligence that this was going to happen, but I'm sure that led to changes as well. I I, I think we're so used to dealing with. Um, big situations. We have um, uh, specialist rooms which are manned 24-7 and I think that what happens is um, that kicks in straight away um, in, in Scotland Yard and and that's where it's coordinated from. And like you say, Steve, um, we're used to these, not that sort of incident, but we're used to big incidents going on, big demonstrations, um, and, and we run gold, is yeah. it Goldcom? Yeah, gold control. But th there's all, they've also had a number of uh, non-criminal situations, fires in the underground system and things like that, where they've had poor... Wasn't there one at King's Crossing, yeah. or was that the big uh, one? There were there were lack of communication between the emergency services and things like that were highlighted. So they've learned those lessons elsewhere. I mean, 7-7 was the second most deadly terrorist attack in the UK. Uh, the one that is still the most deadly terrorist attack was in 1988, which was the Lockerbie bombing, the Pan Am flight that was taken down. I mean, there were 259 people killed there, and that was all to do with Libya and the provisional IRA and stuff like that. So, you know, this was, this was, this was not a new situation to us. Uh, we were used to these kind of things happening in London. Multiples on the same day was unusual. And it, it's actually quite weird because this happened on the Thursday, on a Thursday. The previous Friday and Saturday, we'd had a desktop exercise and the scenario was four bombs on tube, on tube stations at nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, and... Uh, there was uh, that was a tabletop exercise that we conducted over two days, and at the end of that exercise, we came to the conclusion that we couldn't cope. We couldn't cope with that number of scenes, etc. Well, when, when it actually happened, people did cope, but people were heroic. You know, the emergency services were heroic. The members of the public were heroic, um, and it was really quite something to be part of in that respect. Uh, I, saw, I saw one article where they're talking about the bus explosion, where it happened, happened to be in front of the headquarters of the British Medical Association. So although you didn't have hospital supplies, yeah. you had a building full of doctors who were able yeah. to come out and, 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 and address and the people. The person that was responsible, they scraped a lot of him off that building. Oh, uh, so yeah, that's, yeah, and that's we're not going to give any airtime to their no, names no. or give them any validation. This no. is about the victims. Well, you know, Absolutely. you bring up something. Uh, the other thing, that, you know, um, 
we've all had backgrounds in some, you know, working with terrorism at some point. And there's a really, there's a model for this too. And we're, I want to throw this out there because I want to get into this during your investigation because there's a, a point where they fit into this. So usually in the terrorism planning cycle, you've got these different stages. One is preliminary target selection. Then it's initial surveillance, final target selection, pre-attack surveillance, planning, rehearsal, execution, and then escape and exploitation, which in this case, there was no escape. Obviously, they, they, they intended to die. But there are elements of this that we're going to find out during the investigation to where um, we'll, we'll talk about the CCTV and where that you talked about the theory was they all come together. So let, let's kind of work through that. Let's talk about, continue on with the response. What, as you were there, you said initially it wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of digital forensics. So what kind of roles did you uh, play originally, uh, uh, Alan and Graham? What did you guys do originally until your part of the unit started getting tasked? Um, I helped out the uh, exhibits team. Uh, SO13 have a, a dedicated exhibits team who uh, were in the same building as us and uh, we have a process that we go through uh, at the scenes and uh, we went and volunteered to help out the exhibits team. So that's what I did. I, I ended up doing a logistical stuff at Russell Square. I'm very weird, actually, because Russell Square is not a tube station that I kind of frequent or have frequented. And... I didn't go back. I ended up going somewhere and getting off the train about three or four years later and walking through Russell Square tube station. And I felt really, really uncomfortable and horrible. Really had an, had an impact on me just being there subsequently. Russell Square is where the biggest loss of life was, right? Yeah. So when you showed up, describe the scene for us that day, Alan, when you showed up, um, you know, uh, your your eyes on the ground. I mean, if you were giving a report back to command, yeah. what were you seeing at that time when you got there? Uh, I didn't go down the tunnel. Uh, I was doing uh, I was doing logistics outside of the actual tunnel itself. One of the problems you've got in London, or one of the problems that they had, was that the tunnels are actually ventilated by the movement of the trains. So as soon as the train has stopped moving, the temperature goes up very dramatically. So I take my hat off to the people who dealt with the scenes, because especially Russell Square, uh, it was unbelievably hot down in the tunnel. And uh, there are also, it's not very nice, there are also a lot of rodents and stuff like that down there once the train stopped moving. So... Uh, I was involved in, in the logistics outside of the actual scene itself. Uh, but I have seen, well, I've, I've, we've got photographs of the scene and late digital laser scans of the scenes and, and, and the site inside the train is horrendous. Uh, I, I, I do presentations on this and I hide uh, most of the slides of the scenes. Uh, I wouldn't show them to anybody who either was, well, they'd have to be in law enforcement and they'd have to have a reason to uh, to uh, see the photographs because they are just horrendous. And Graham, what did you, I'm sorry, Steve, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, with the, with the lack of ventilation in there, because the train's sitting still, you've got all that smoke You've got the uh, uh, the exhaust uh, the going on in there, the carnage, yeah. 
the dust from the from the walls being buffeted. I, it, yeah. I can't even imagine that they could see what they were doing, much less be able to breathe. Yeah. I mean, I was on the platform uh, and I was probably 100 yards from the train and even the platform was just horrible. Uh, so I, I take my, I really do salute the people who dealt with the scenes. Uh, and I salute the heroism of the public who, uh, their actions helping seriously injured people, uh, and helping them on occasions to survive. I'm quite sure they would have died, uh, had it not been for members of the public applying first aid before the emergency services got in there. Because it's a difficult situation, you know, you've got to get down onto the, uh, into the system, you've got to get through the tunnel and you've got to get to the train. Uh, and then you've got to get these seriously injured people out of that environment. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a pleasant situation for sure. Well, Morgan found some articles here about some of the heroic actions, which uh, yeah. I enjoyed reading that more than anything else we've done as far as research on this particular interview. And the presence of mind of some of the victims to render first aid to themselves. Uh, read about one man who picked up a limb who had been, that had been severed and carried his own limb out. I'm not sure I would have ever thought to do that. Wow. Another where a lady, uh, I think she lost both legs, but she pulled her scarf off and ripped it in two and, and applied tourniquets to herself. Uh, just the presence of mind is just, uh, it's a testament to the to the people in London. Uh, you know, normal citizens the, performing heroic acts on themselves as well as others that needed help is just, it's it's a very motivational read to see what people were actually doing. You know, the bus driver of that bus said that uh, prior to getting in front of where the bomb exploded, I guess the police had blocked off the street for whatever reason. And because he had to take a detour, 50 people on the bus got off because mm. they didn't want to go the direction he was going. And that saved 50 lives. It's yeah. just, wow. I mean, truly, truly heroic actions. God bless those people for having the presence of mind to take action. Yeah. The, the, the senior investigating officer, uh, I've seen him give a talk. And Edgware, they use a bit of video of the Edgware Road. I think it's the Edgware Road train. And it pulls into the platform. The doors open. People get off and people get on. And then it goes into the tunnel and you can see the blast come back down the the line but he names everybody he can look at the video and he can actually name the people getting onto the train who don't survive oh my uh, gosh and i think it is uh i've seen a couple of presentations like that i saw one on the effect of the tsunami in sri lanka uh where some of the disaster victim people had been involved and they actually named the victims and it's really, uh, it's a lesson I learned. It's something that you should always do in those situations because these people have lives, you know, and all the rest of it. Uh, they're not statistics, yeah. They're not just a number. you got to put a face on it, yeah. Uh, Graham, what about you? What, where did you first, uh, what, what was your first assignment on that day? So I, I went up to the exhibits office, uh, up to the FMT, and I, I acted as a liaison up there. So you can imagine, you know, everything is going on. The phones are ringing. So I was helping with the phones. Um, also, at, at that time, the, the priority is to identify 
the bombers because we need to know if there's any more or um, if there's uh, any more going to happen that day or if in, in the future. So we need to identify the bombers uh, and then put into action anything surrounding them that uh, to, to progress the inquiry, to, to prevent, like Alan says, further, further loss of life. So it was all about prioritising what exhibits were found um, to get to us and, uh, and, and help with the investigation. So, so did, was it centralized? Did all the exhibits then from all the bombings come back to where you were at or did they split that up? No, the FMT, so the, the forensic management team, the, the exhibits would have come back to us and then from there gone to it. Well, there were so many exhibits that we ended up uh, with a with a new store place um, to uh, process the exhibits. Um, and, and we did, Alan, did you mention some figures of how many exhibits? I was about to ask yeah, that. How many did you end up by with? By the end, there were 38,500 exhibits. Oh, oh, did you have a, a data management uh, database yeah. that could handle that? Yeah, and they actually... It's phenomenal. That, that sounds simple, but that's phenomenal, yeah. tracking all that. Well, that was over both of the attacks. Uh, they ended up with that number. We ended up with two warehouses. Uh, I think used as exhibit stores. Well, how big were some of the biggest pieces of evidence you had to collect? Uh, there were vehicles. There were... Uh, the handrails of escalators, uh, that sort of stuff. I think at one point we took an entire telephone kiosk. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah, there were a lot, there was a lot. So, and what is the, obviously you have a high operational tempo at this point. You guys are just going and going and going. Um, where were you guys sleeping? What were you doing? I think we were under the desk, weren't we, Graham? Yeah, we we slept in the office uh, over the over the years. We've uh, we'd, we'd um, um, found bits of foam and stuff like that that we had in a cupboard, and we used to lay the foam under the desk and uh, and just get your head down for a couple of hours there. Oh yeah, and that's restful, and and that helps your body recuperate too, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I, I think um, you, as you you get to a stage, go ahead. You get to a stage though, because. I use the word exciting, and and it's it, it it is exciting to be involved in something like this, and and um, you 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 have an exhibit in, and and you want to find something. You are um, uh, as a professional person, you really want to find that nugget that'll take the investigation further. So it it it, it is. It gives you a buzz to be there. And 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 uh, and and do that sort of stuff. And if you find something, you will say straight away in the office. Like I'd say to Alan, "Come and have a look at this, Alan. Do you, what do you reckon on this?" Or somebody else, or Alan would call somebody over, and and that's how it worked in the office. The the, the whole idea was to 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 get as much on these bombers as possible from from any forensic source. And when you say any forensic source. Give us the breadth and depth of when you say forensics. What does that cover that you're looking for that you guys are pulling together? I mean, that's not just bits and pieces of like wood and plastic and but you're talking about computers, cell phones, what? 
Yeah, um, and and as I said to you the other day, it, the the problem you've got is it's rush hour, and you're not only dealing with the uh, every electronic gadget down there is is probably somebody's personal um, item going to work that day. So you, you, that 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 was another thing that, that that we had to deal with was who did it belong to, where was it found, and how do you prioritise this. We had things like SIM cards that were found during post-mortems buried in people uh, by the force of the explosion and things like that. So, uh, but, you know, uh, the, one of the first things, that uh, one of our ambitions always was to recover the component parts of the devices that we used. Uh, so they would go looking for that how how were these what were these devices how were they initiated uh where were these people from the they normally are manufactured and made in one specific location which we we always refer to as the bomb factory so we want to find the bomb factory we want to recover all the evidence evidence we can from the bomb factory etc etc uh so uh you know there were a, a lot of different uh, a lot of different exhibits and a lot of different types of exhibits and there was obviously you know the number of video cameras there are in london there was then a huge video trawl that took place which actually was responsible for identifying their route down to london because these people weren't from london they traveled in specifically to do this how how did you identify each of the four suicide bombers? Because they were blown to bits and pieces, right? They were. There was documentation. The, initially, it was documentation. And then the video trawl uh, found uh, four people with rucksacks uh, who uh, looked like the bombers, and they were able to confirm they were from the documentation that was found. Uh, they had things on them like uh, student passes and uh, things like and, and identity cards. Uh, they they made no attempt to kind of conceal their identities on the day. Well, Alan, you keep saying documentation. Uh, what kind of documentation did you locate on them that helped you identify them as the bombers? Because, um, uh, you know, a lot of people can carry uh, cards, but are we talking about things that are traditional harmonics, suicide bombers, letters, uh, any no, kind of indication? No, credit cards, uh, college ID cards, things like that, that were recovered from the scene that they thought uh, belonged to the people responsible. Uh, the video trawl took place, and they kind of, I think, initially concentrated on King's Cross, because the theory always was all the lines and the bus emanated from there, they identified uh, them actually arriving at King's Cross on a mainline uh, railway uh, line that came from outside of London. So they then went back down that line. They identified the same people getting on uh, in a town called Luton. They were then able to identify the vehicle that they'd driven down, they'd, they'd driven from the north of England down to Luton. Three of them had, they'd met up with a fourth person there. They'd taken the mainline train into King's Cross and then disseminated from King's Cross. They were able to identify the vehicle. Uh, there was a rental car from uh, the area they lived in in the north of England parked in the car park. 
uh, our bomb disposal people, we call them expos, but they got there, uh, they examined the vehicle and there were peroxide-based explosive devices still in the vehicle. Uh, so then they, uh, they tracked all the video footage on the motorway system uh, and they had them coming down from the north of England. Uh, and then inquiries up in the north of England, they actually identified a flat they had hired, which was the bomb factory. And so these additional devices that were in the car, were they operational or were they designed for follow-on attacks? Or were they just extras in case something uh, went south during the uh, uh, execution? They, a couple of them almost looked like homemade grenades. Uh, they were the things that ended up in the newspaper. Photographs of them appended, appeared very quickly in the newspaper and we were a bit annoyed about it. Uh, somebody leaked the photos. Yeah, and somebody leaked the photos from the other side of the Atlantic. Ah, <laughs> oh. yeah, those Canadians. You, yeah, those Canadians. Well, Canadians. What are we going to do with Yeah, they, they went out to the bomb data center, uh, and that's that's where the the press got them from. Let me let me just follow up a little bit on identifying the suspects. So you you found these credit cards and student IDs. Uh, obviously, there were more out there. So was it just through a process of elimination of of identifying? particular credit cards or student IDs to victims or survivors? And is that how you narrowed it down to the four bombers? Uh, I think so. I wasn't, I wasn't involved in that. I've seen uh, the documents and the, I've seen the credit cards and the, the IDs, et cetera, that they had on them. Uh, a lot of the, the people responsible, there wasn't a whole lot of them left. Uh, and I would imagine that these these may have been some distance from where the explosion took place or something like that. I don't know, Graham, if you know, but uh, fairly early on, they identified the people responsible. It was impressive how quickly it was done. That's what I will say. That was excellent yeah. investigative work. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, the, the other thing about th this was it's, it's homemade peroxide-based explosive. Uh, and they probably got lucky with the mix because they produced devices that had devastating power when they exploded. And we recovered very little of the component parts of the devices as a result. And the devices are fairly simple. It's a rucksack with a plastic bucket in it uh, full of this stuff and a... Uh, the small equivalent of a detonator with a, a, a light bulb in it with the glass removed and all you do is sit on the train connected to a battery the light bulb uh, heats up sets off the debt sets off the main charge uh, they've got normally got some uh, coolant in there as well uh, to try and keep the device cool uh, but relatively simple but they recovered very little component parts uh, uh, and they, you know, they, they, they potentially got, uh, they were either very good or got lucky with the mix. Because two weeks later, they got unlucky with the mix. 
Which is, yeah, we're going to hop into that in a minute, too, because there was, a, a, as I say in uh, England, a fortnight later, there was a second uh, attempted attack. Graham, when you were handling the exhibits, what do you remember as being, you talked about waiting, you you know, and, and, I, and I understand what you're talking about. People think excited like you're excited in a bad way. It's not like it's like, this is what I trained for. This is what I was designed to do. I want to help, you know, I, I want to help break this case. Do you remember one of the first things you remember being kind of that golden nugget or something that says, hey, this is going to help us? Because a lot of times you get extraneous things, but do you remember, was there one or two things that when they came in, you thought that this is going to be key to this investigation? Not, not from the scene, no. Uh, because as Alan said, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of them left uh, and it, it was how they were identified. But later on in the investigation, uh, when we were examining machines, then uh, we were finding stuff then. But as far as identifying the suspects, there was there was nothing that came into our office to do that. Um, it was all done through the uh, through the FMT. Early on, it was the video trawl that was critical, and identifying the bomb factory, uh, and. Uh, and I think those two things were essentially very early on two of the most two of the most critical things that took place. Um, How soon did raids happen after um, when you identify? Obviously, when you identify the bomb factory, there's going to be a raid. How long between the explosions and the raid on the bomb factory? How long of a time was that? A couple of I days, can, I think, yeah, at most. Yeah, I think they they I think they'd identified the bomb factory within two days. Wow. But there's some key things involving computers, which was basically your areas of expertise as well. So, Graham, you were talking about that. Some things started coming in later. You've got all of these computers coming in and or devices. And the other thing you're obviously looking for, too, is the devices, anything connected to the suspects. What kind of things did the uh, terrorists have that became uh, of evidential value for you folks to examine? There, there was a will, wasn't there, Alan, on one of the computers? Uh, there was a letter... Uh, one of them had written to his father. Uh, when you say computer, was that back at one of their flats? Right. This was in the family home in the north of England. Uh, they had, uh, I remember this is 1985. Uh, sorry, sorry. This is 2005. People, you know, people didn't have laptops. They didn't have smartphones and stuff like that. So there was the old tower computer that the family used sitting at home. Uh, we'd imaged it, and we'd found uh, we'd found in something called the slack space of a file about three quarters of a letter that the person responsible for the bus had written to his father. It was very important from our point of view, evidentially, because it was it was evidence of intent on his part. Uh, there was some of the families were suggesting that uh, there was there was a guy who was obviously the ringleader. Uh, and he was the oldest of the four people involved. That was MSK? That was MSK. Uh, the, there were suggestions from the families that their, their loved ones had not had been duped and they, they hadn't realised what was going on. They'd just been asked to carry a package and it was obviously a, a device with a timer and they didn't know anything about it. Uh, and this became important evidentially because you could go to a coroner's inquest and say it's evidence of intent, etc. So uh, that was found. Um, Wasn't MSK also, though, tracked back to Pakistan and actually meeting with some Al-Qaeda operatives um, in terms of training? Uh, we think he'd been in Pakistan and I think Afghanistan as well. 
so I th- you know th- I think there's no doubt he was the ringleader. Uh, yeah, and he was kind of on the he was on the peripheral of some other previous situations in the UK as well. And you're using initials, just to clarify for our listeners, you're using initials because we don't want to give credit to any of these people. We want to recognize them. They're just mass murderers. Yeah. Uh, they deserve no recognition from yeah, us. I'm not really interested in giving them any publicity whatsoever. Absolutely. No, Absolutely. other than the fact that they're all room temperature. Yeah. Um, Graham, so um, how many days how many, how many days did you work before you got a day off finally? I mean, was this continuous up until... Uh, Alan's laughing, right? Was there such a thing as a day off during this time or any time off? No. <laughs> no. And-, well, and you know and I know that, but it's like, but a lot of people listening, I don't think they understand is that when you go in for a big event like this, you're not... You, you don't know for sure when you're going to see your, your own bed again. See, I, I, even before this, Morgan, we were, we were so busy. Our yeah. average day was a 12-hour 14 hour day anyway um and and possibly um most weekends you know where you'd probably get a weekend off uh, in three so because we had we had so much stuff going on and then this happens i i, I can't remember how many straight days i, I did on a drop but yeah, it would have been months it, yeah it would have been months yeah so um you know it, well so in the middle of all of this, how long did it take before, I don't want to, because there's, there's no such thing as a sense of normal, but during the first attack, how long did it take before you're actually kind of able to take a little bit of a breath to think, okay, we've got a little bit of breathing room here now. Now we know that we're into the, you know, the, 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 the details of the investigation. Was it, was that a week? Was that 10 days? Did you ever reach a point during the first two weeks to where you kind of had that natural, okay, things have slowed down enough. You know, we can take a little bit of a breath. We, we were just starting to take a little bit of a breath when 21-7 happened. And so it, 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 it all hit the fan again. The, the, the well, bo- let's, let's talk about that. So uh, during that two weeks, Graham, how much progress had been made in terms of the investigation? In other words, it sounds like you're pretty clear that you found your four suspects. You found the bomb factory. Were there other arrests that had been made during that time? Uh, me not not being uh, not being part of that. I, I I think so, but I can't say for definite. I know there was a there was a woman at one point, Alan, wasn't there? That was arrested. Yeah, there were a number of other people, but there was. Uh, I think we had the totality of the conspiracy there in the UK. There were people outside of the UK who were obviously going to be of interest, but. Uh, I think we we were starting to think that uh, they were quite close knit, um, and uh, we 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 kind of had the dangerous people in the UK um, identified. So uh, it was just beginning to like everybody was just beginning to take a breath, and of course, then two weeks later, uh, four people tried to replicate the situation. Unfortunately. Uh, it wasn't successful. I think if it had been successful, it would have had quite an impact. Well, let's talk about were they, because two weeks, two weeks time is not enough time to do the terrorism planning cycle, to do all the things you need to do. This sounds like there were two concurrent campaigns going on. And this one was, was it designed 
because there you know some of the information and I don't obviously have access to the classified uh, information but but it seems like there are some links between some of the players in in each terrorist cell that were responsible for doing this was this coordinated or was this just happened to be uh, two uh, campaigns in parallel one executing after the right. other as far as I'm aware the two groups of people were separate but the second attack I think you're right in that they wouldn't have had the time. There had to be uh, concurrent planning going on. Uh, and they were different sorts of people as well. Uh, but uh, it's difficult to think that the 21-7 conspiracy was not, had not been progressed before the first attack. So, it, it, you know, I don't know, but m my suspicion would be it was being coordinated from outside of the UK. And, uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if they were being coordinated and kept separate for operational security reasons. Yeah. But there must be a connection at some point. Well, I'm thinking somewhere in Pakistan or Afghanistan because they have to. Their controller has to be out there somewhere. Just like because some of the groups, Lashkari Taiba, um, some of the other ones that were involved in the Mumbai bombings. I mean, there's a lot of similarities between this yeah. um, and what happened there. Um, but but you were just taking Graham. You were just talking about. It. You're just getting ready to take a collective breath. Where were you on twenty one seven when this? And and tell us about how you came about finding out that a second attempt was underway. I think I was in the office from memory and, and somebody came down from the exhibits office and said they, it, it appears that we've got another incident because, because these things didn't go off. Um, they just made a lot of smoke um, and I, I think um, that, that was how um, we got to hear about it. Yeah, I was definitely in the office. Uh, and we ended up, we ended up on standby for the uh, for the Oval Tube Station scene because they thought it was a chemical attack. Uh, oh, because of the smoke, because the peroxide yeah. didn't detonate what, like normal. It looked like chemical. What happened was they'd made up two batches. They'd made up the deaths from one batch and the main charge from a second. And what happened was the detonators actually exploded. They connected the batteries up. They actually went bang and detonated. But the main charge didn't explode. The main charge went through a chemical process. Uh, and when they got initially to the, uh, the, the, the tube train in, in, at the Oval, there was this bubbling, horrible mass sitting on the floor of the train. And they looked at it and thought, hmm, we think this might be a chemical attack. Because I remember we were all CBRN trained. Uh, and we actually were getting kitted up to go down there when they actually cancelled it as a chemical uh, attack. What is CPRN? Uh, chemical, biological, nuclear, and radioactive. You know, the old suits and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, and we would add the E onto it now for explosive too, so yeah. CBRNE. So we were, we, our forensic unit is probably the only one in the UK at the time that, that could actually deal with scenes like that. So so they actually did try to, to detonate all these bombs. Yeah. Uh, they were just idiots and didn't do it right. Yeah. And, well, thank God. And then, of course, then we've got a, a live manhunt on for four suicide bombers on the loose in London. Well, and Graham, one of them, uh, again, don't want to mention his name, one of them headed for a place that you were originally stationed at, which was Shepherd's Bush. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I think the train came through Shepherd's Bush, didn't it? Mount, uh, yeah. Allen. So yeah. Um, yeah. And, one of the and, one of the attacks happened at Shepherd's Bush. And I I got to recollect, Alan. Did you and I go out to Shepherd's Bush that day? I I just got a recollection of going out that way for something, and I can't I can't remember what it's got lost in them in the last sixteen years. But I'm, I'm no, sure I I didn't. You may have done. I didn't. What I distinctly remember is that we uh, because the Oval Station was just up the road from where we worked. Uh, we were we we were put on standby to deal with that scene if it did turn out to be a chemical attack, uh, because we 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 were we were actually getting kitted up. So was it in the first attack or the second one to where you went to the car park and the way you got onto the vehicle was that a lady said uh, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a hey. <laughs> that was the first that was the, the first, first attack oh. yeah. Yeah, well, you you had a good story about that, Graham. What was that? So you show up, but you you go you go out to interview this lady. Yeah. So the story is that she reported that there was a strange car in the car park. You know, because obviously um, we were applying, uh, not applying. We were asking for witnesses and anything. You know, if anybody had seen anything, no matter how small. You know, we were interested. And there was a call that uh, uh, from this lady after the ca- after the car had been found, but she she um, had, had called us and said that uh, yeah, I, I, it was really I was really upset that morning because I drove my car into the car park, and and we all our regular all us regular commuters we have uh, an unwritten rule that we all have our own parking space. It's not it's not given to them but everybody knew where their parking space and so she turns up that morning and there's there's this car in her place and she was a bit miffed about this that this car was there uh, <laughs> even even down to the fact that she she got the camera out and started taking photographs of the car in situ because <laughs> she was I, I don't know what she was going to do with it whether they had a a, a, a newsletter or whatever to do with all these uh, these regular car parks and she was going to have a moan and groan at the next meeting that some somebody had parked their car in her spot. But, but she uh, didn't just take photographs. She took, like, crime scene photographs. There was the front, <laughs> the back, the side, the number plate. Uh, you couldn't have done a better job yourself. Yeah. Well, you know. Uh, and speaking of true British hospitality, uh, you went up to talk with her. She actually invited you in for yeah, tea? Yeah, we, we, uh, we went there. When Alan and I went into the house. Um, they were a couple of eccentrics, weren't they, Alan? Yeah. It, so, um, and uh, she was not going to give me the camera. We, we weren't taking that camera away from her. So uh, we, <laughs> we, we had to go to the car and get our laptops out and image the SD card in situ. And she's hovering. And uh, and, and I got a, a recollection that this SD card gave me a bit of a problem to try and get an image of it. And there's nothing worse than having your sergeant behind you who's kicking you up the ass saying, come on, and her watching you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, and so I, Alan was your sergeant at that time. Oh, no, Alan was my sergeant, yeah. So, um, and, hey, and you guys have talked about imaging a couple times. I, I know what it means, but for folks listening, when you were talking about computers or digital media, Graham, when you say you did, took an image of something, what does that mean? Yeah, we we took a a forensic uh, bite for bite uh, uh, copy of that SD card, uh, 
So whether yeah. it's a computer hard drive or a, a, a SD card, it's an exact duplicate of whatever is on that card. You're, you're able to duplicate it even into, like you're saying earlier, Alan, what's called the slack space between the end of the file and I guess the end of the sector. You know, anything that's on that, uh, it, it is an exact copy of whatever's on there. And that what that's what allows you to go back to the lab yeah. and analyze these and, things. And you can find a lot of stuff that's not visible to a normal user, uh, you know, deleted stuff and things like that. So uh, that's always our ambition is to get a, a, a copy of the binary data, an exact copy of the binary data. Yeah, and my understanding is from the second attack, uh, one of the attackers um, either got flustered or didn't follow through with it and dumped it in a park at uh, Little Wormwood Scrubs. Wormwood yeah. Scrubs. Well, where, where, first of all, where do you come up with a name like Little Wormwood Scrubs? It's not Little Wormwood Scrubs. It's actually Wormwood Scrubs. Which Wormwood, uh, wormwood Scrubs. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry, you're right, actually. It's the Little Wormwood Scrubs Recreational <laughs> Ground. Yeah. <laughs> Which is which is right next to the prison, Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Yeah, uh, actually, it, it that I don't know, Graham. Was that one still a bit of a mystery? Uh, because there was a device dumped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there was obviously another. There was another intended target. And, but no idea. Who, no idea what the target was going to be. No. Wow. You said these. Uh, so these five bombers. They came up from the north. Down from the north. When we down, were doing our down. pre-call with you. <laughs> they came down from, yeah, the, from north. the north. What does, what does that mean? The, the people responsible for the attacks on, on the 7th of July lived about 150 miles from London in the north of England. Uh, or three and of what the, about three the second group? Uh, the second group lived in London. Uh, and then there was, a, there was the, mad, uh, the, the manhunt for them. Uh, and one was arrested in Birmingham. Uh, one was arrested, or two were arrested in London, and one was arrested in Italy in the end. And one was actually that was on the plane, right? I mean, about fifty-three hours later, I think didn't wasn't one of them on a plane. And they the I think it was uh, Emirates Air did not check the do not fly list, and they were able to get on the plane because they bought a ticket for cash. I mean, it was one of those things that was so coincidental is that uh, they were able to bring them back to the gate um, and arrest them off the plane, if, if my research is correct. Uh, no. Uh, Are you telling me my research is not correct? I, I'm telling you that one of them was arrested in Italy, two were arrested in London, and one was arrested in Birmingham. Well, there's a total of five. Where's the fifth one? Uh, there wasn't a fifth one in that, at that time. Oh, sorry. Yes, there is a fifth one, but he's arrested in London as well. See, Alan, here you go doubting me between <laughs> Little Wormwood Scrubs and now the fifth one. Yeah, no, sorry, there is a fifth one, but he was arrested in London as well. So but between this now, I mean, you've got to be, everybody's got to be set on edge at this point because now you've had one successful attack. You've had one aborted. What, what was the reason that the second attack, uh, part of it obviously was design of the bomb, right? So if it bubbles out, are they still using the same kind of approach trying to use peroxide and build the same bombs? I'm not aware of any of that type of thing. We've had an incendiary attack. And then since then they've gone for this low tech vehicle and knife attacks. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not, uh, Graham might correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not aware of another peroxide-based explosive attack since then. It's been the gas bottles attacks, because we had Tiger Tiger, yeah. That, yeah. That, and if that one had gone off, the, well, it would have been... Actually, tell a lie, the 
uh, air, air, airline conspiracy was liquid peroxide-based explosive. Uh, so that's the only one that I'm aware of uh, since that time. And Richard Reed was um, uh, was that more of a plastic explosive no, built into the Richard shoe? Richard Reed was peroxide-based explosive. Uh, okay. And uh, but I'm the Tiger Tiger attack was I'm sorry the Tiger Tiger attack was the incendiary attack, uh, but the airline was liquid-based peroxide explosive. Right, and that that was 19 people I think arrested. Um, before uh, could go operational? 24 we arrested on 24? the day in question when we all had to run around in the middle of the night because the Americans convinced the Pakistanis to arrest Richard Ralph. Thanks for that, guys. We're here for you. Yeah. Anything we can do, just let wasn't, us know. Wasn't there? I will tell you, though, thankfully, you still got friends. I got a heads up. I was in Orlando, you know, one of our favorite places, and I was called like at 3 o'clock in the morning to say, if you're going to be on an airplane, you better get down to the airport now because I got there right as TSA was changing the rules and making people throw stuff. Um off, you know, you couldn't take anything more than three ounces onto the plane. And there were some people bitching and griping and moaning. And I just kind of looked back at one of the guys and I didn't realize I had it on at that time. I actually had a uh, polo shirt on from the embassy in Pakistan. And I said, Hey pal, if they're doing it, there's a reason. And I don't want to be on a plane. You know, you know, you, you tell me if you think you're so big and brave, I said, but for me, Toss your stuff and, you know, toss your shit in the trash can or, as you say, bin it or let TSA take care of you. But a couple of the big boys were about ready to take this guy and throw him out of line. But Disney's supposed to be the happiest place in the world. Yeah, happiest place <laughs> on so, Earth. Uh, Whatever. So, that, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a story that uh, I, was, uh, I was out in Utah uh, last year and uh, we flew down to San Antonio and... Uh, get, 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 Keith said to me, when we're not, we're just taking hand luggage. So I said, okay, that's fine. So um, I got my cosmetics and my, my deodorant and, and everything. And, and he said to me, what have you got in your case for, for that? And I said, yeah, I got my deodorant. I got this guy. He said, give me a look. So I said, said, that's not going on the plane. You are the reason why we have 311, is it? When you fly, what yeah. is it? Three ounces, one clear bag or something or whatever yeah. it is, yeah. And he says to me, you are the reason why whenever I fly now, I can only take this amount of stuff on the on the plane, toothpaste, uh, deodorant, because it's three, what, 311. I'm sure that's what it is. Did, did you say you had your cosmetics in your bag? Yeah. I was about to ask. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was another British term here. <laughs> are, are you dabbing your forehead with makeup there? Uh, are, are you grand? My skin cream. Why do you think my skin looks so good at my age? Are you still called Angela the weekends? Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, better than being called Karen. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's true. Well, um, we actually, you know, so, um, but to... I mean, this is obviously a big extensive story because we talked about the airline plot, which, uh, you know, maybe if uh, with depending on your gent schedule, we might cover that. That's a separate episode, you know, in and of itself. But to bring the resolution of both 7705 and 21705, um, you know, into context, 
Alan, you actually told a story too about you were going to the inquest and your boss, I think you called him your governor, yeah. asked, how do you know these are terrorists? And you're, you know, it's kind of one of those obvious things. It's kind of like, well, duh, they're terrorists. Yeah. We found the stuff. They blew themselves up. But you actually had an interesting analysis or he had an interesting question about that. What was yeah, that? No, this was actually interesting. Uh, it was about... 18 months after the events and I was at a meeting with the senior investigating officer and everybody was talking about suicide bombers and he said well hang on a minute how do you know they were suicide bombers and we all looked at him and went what are you talking about governor you know they were he said yeah but what evidence have I got that I can put in front of a coroner's inquest and say this is evidence that they're suicide bombers bearing in mind some of the relatives were saying our son w would never get involved in this. It, he was, he'd obviously been duped into carrying a bag or was helping someone out, etc. Uh, and it was really interesting. We kind of hadn't thought about it. And we all stopped in our tracks and thought, whoa, you know, and that's where things like that letter became very important evidentially uh, because it was evidence of intent uh, that they were going to do the deed, etc., etc. So uh, he was very analytical about evidence and and he was also you know 21 7 everybody's running around like headless chickens and he said right this is a criminal investigation follow the evidence uh and there was a very sort of calming effect uh on a lot of people at that time because of course the other unfortunate incident that happened related to 21 7 is we shot dead an innocent person mistakenly uh, and that was based on rules of engagement that came out of 7-7, right? No, this was based on uh, a policy they developed for dealing with suicide bombers uh, where they would actually order armed police officers to go somewhere and shoot somebody. Uh, normally, So that was a policy prior to 7705? Yeah, that was a policy when, when suicide bombings were happening elsewhere. What are we going to do if we've got someone running around London who's a suicide bomber? Uh, and the policy was to actually order people to go and shoot them. Uh, normally, if you're an armed police officer, you make that decision yourself. You don't get ordered to shoot somebody. But if you're talking suicide bombers, somebody was misidentified as one of the people who were involved. Uh, I think he was a Brazilian uh, Jean-Charles de Menes, his name was. Uh, he was followed by an armed surveillance team. He was followed onto the tube system and they were told to shoot him, which they did. And it turned out that he wasn't one of the people involved. So, you know, uh, that was a horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, also, when you're talking like that, and put it in context, context with your American listeners, we don't carry firearms per se over here. You know, they are our ordinary cops like you. You have, you have a, a gun culture, right to bear arms, and you and and. But we don't have that over here. So, um, an ordinary cop walking the streets does not carry a firearm. So, to make it perfectly, you know, make it clear to your listeners that you know what Alan is talking about is an armed surveillance team put together for a specific purpose who have specialized training yeah. yeah yeah the first time i remember ever seeing an armed police officer the first time was actually a 2000 visit i had to new scotland yard and they you had a uh, armed constable sitting out in front uh, of the door and that that's the first time i remember seeing 
you know, somebody armed in, uh, um, in the UK now, but, but obviously Scotland, Ireland, uh, they're, they're different, but, it, but in Great Britain itself, uh, the police officers generally are unarmed unless you have a special team. Is that correct? Yeah, generally unarmed. Yeah, I yeah. mean, what, what we have now in London and what they have in most places is we have these things called armed response vehicles. So there are armed police officers in London uh, in response vehicles. So if something happens in central London, there will be an armed response vehicle there within a very short period of time. Uh, so the, the ordinary constables walking around uh, don't carry don't carry guns but if something happens there'll be one there very quickly now now do a lot of them now are they deployed with uh, things like tasers you know obviously in batons yeah and, they've um, got tasers uh and they've got uh cs gas uh that they can use oh. Uh, I, I remember the first time i got sprayed with it's called oc oleo resin capsicum cayenne pepper yeah such, it's not a pleasant experience. Put your pucker on fire, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> when you wash your hair the wrong way, oh, man, that was that is bad stuff. You know, it's a little surprising. Uh, Javier and I went over to Ireland the first time, and, and of course we met some members of the Garda, and, and they're unarmed. But then we went up to Belfast, and yeah. while we were there, <laughs> we met... We met with the cops, the, the armed cops, yeah. and and we're out and very nice. They took us to see the uh, what was the Wall of Peace there in Belfast. Yeah. But the funny thing was, they took us out in an, an armored car. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it looked like a it, here in the United States, it looks like something that the banks would transport money in. But uh, it was funny back at their office, they had Audis, the big class Audis, and I'm, I'm thinking, wow, you guys have very nice police cars. But it was all about a car that could sustain uh, a long period of high speed because the armed cops had to get somewhere in case an helicopter, a helicopter was not available. They had to drive to wherever the location was they were needed, but completely different than what we're used to here in the U.S. Well, let's um, let's let's finish up with a couple things, because uh, ultimately this was uh, the cases were made. Lots of arrests were made. Things were closed. And you guys went on, you know, obviously to other parts. I do want to talk a little bit, though, about um, the Christmas party. <laughs> Whose Christmas party? Which Christmas party? <laughs> the one they made a mistake of inviting me to on my way back. I don't remember where I was coming from, Turkey or Pakistan or something. And uh, we all had, so um, I think it was SO13 or maybe 15 at that time, because I don't think it was, uh, what did you call it, CIB3? DPS? Um, DPS? Yeah, I think, but anyway, but I remember uh, we started off, You, in fact, you both had picked me up at the airport, and um, we were driving by Windsor Castle, and I was fascinated. I said, how old is Windsor Castle? And Alan, I remember to this day, you go, oh, only some of those newest parts are only 200 years old, and I'm going, that's almost the age of our country at that point. <laughs> and you said you yeah. were assigned there. What did you do at Windsor Castle, you said, when you were assigned there uh, the first time? I was, after the provisional IRA blew up Louis Mountbatten, who was um, a minor member of the royal family, there was a suspicion that, that uh, they might be mounting campaign against the royals, so they upped all the security around the palaces. So I was a young uniformed PC at the time, so we just provided additional security at Windsor Castle. Windsor It's one of those weird things, you know, we were talking about the Met Police and Scotland Yard and everything. Windsor Castle isn't in the Met Police's area, but it is policed by the Met Police because of Queen Victoria. 
Um, she didn't want the locals policing it. <laughs> so to this day, Windsor Castle is part of the London police area. Just inside, you go outside the walls, you're into, is it Thames yeah. Valley Police Ten- Force? Thames Valley. Something like that now. Uh, so... Uh, that's another one of those weird historic anomalies. But, I mean, a lot of these... It's like the Vatican, its own self-enclosed city within a city. You know, a lot of these things, it's like the Tower of London. You know, they were built by the Normans uh, to suppress us after the invasion in 1066. So the circular keep at Windsor Castle dates back to the Normans. It's probably, you know, the, the old the White Tower at the Tower of London was built in 1068. Uh, so it's a little bit old. Oh, it's phenomenal. Like about, like about 700 years before the Mayflower. Well, I was, I was staying out in Runnymede at that time, but we all went to that Christmas party that started off, I believe it was 1130 in the morning. And I remember riding in the smallest vehicle I've ever ridden in. And I think you were driving, Graham. Alan and I had to get out because you had to back it into a parking space and then basically crawl out a window. So <laughs> the, the, the parking at that, that, that unit was, was awful. The, the garage sergeant, the traffic garage sergeant, spent more time there reporting Pollacks than, than any other place on, yeah. in the Met. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you just call a, an accident? Pollack. A police, police accident, a Pollack. When you hit something in a police car, it's, you've got, it's got to be reported by a traffic sergeant. Or, or you just uh, need to know a good garage where you can get it fixed. Yeah. <laughs> so we're parking in this thing, and I remember we go to the Christmas party, and we start off, and I'm like, look, I'm their guest. They invited me, so I wanted to be kind. So I said, hey, look, we get done eating here. Let's, let's go hit a couple pubs. And I think we spent, what, 12 hours hitting pubs? Oh my gosh! It's somewhere around there, I think it was because because this is what I learned from you on the pre-call, Graham. Every time we start, and I don't remember how many people were with us. Uh, I think we start. We had five or seven, but uh, every time we started to leave, we said, our, "We knew our time to leave was." We said, "One for the frogs," and you said, "That's Cockney rhyming slang." I always thought it was like one for the French, but what is that saying? One for the frogs. Let's have another drink for the road. So they, in in, cock, in okay. Cockney rhyming slang, it's frog and toad the road. Les Allen's going to correct me now. Yeah. No, <laughs> Cockney rhyming slang is an original form of encryption to defeat the cop. Not be Wall Street party knives, Governor. So what they used to do is they used to invent their own expressions that rhymed. So if you were going upstairs, you'd be going up the apples because it rhymes with apples and pears. And pears uh, rhymes with stairs. Yeah. So apples and pears, stairs. Uh, frog and toad road. So when you say one for the frog, you're saying one for the road. Weep, weeping willow pillow. So I'm going to lay my head down on the weeping. Yeah. Because so, yeah. I've got a because I've got a sore Uncle Ted. Yeah. Is he your China? China, China plate, plate yeah. mate. mate. Yeah. Uh, the old dustbin lids. How many dustbin lids have you got? The kids. The kids. Uh, but it's. Uh, Plates of meat, feet. Uh, uh, it's it, it, yeah. Goes uh, on. So some of them, some of the expressions, you know, it's not used like it was, but some of the expressions have just kind of stuck. And one for the frog is very common. Well, I always thought it meant one for the French because we were joking about that. But apparently, so it's frog, one for the road, the yeah. toad. Yeah. So frog um, and toad. 
so the the aftermath of that night of drinking, and I think it was extensive. And you told me a story I didn't even know, Graham. We were at an Italian restaurant. What did I allegedly do before I tell the folks exactly what happened afterwards? Well, we picked you up and we took you to an Italian restaurant. This was on another night. And, oh, a uh, different night. A different <laughs> night this was on. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you, we, you really tried to lead us astray quite a bit when you were here. So this we, is where the term ugly American came from, was you, Morgan. Yeah. yeah so uh, we'd, we'd had a few beers and we sat down then in this Italian restaurant. Nice Italian <laughs> restaurant. Uh, in, in, we're behaving ourselves, we are aren't we? We're behaving ourselves and it's in <laughs> yeah. Spain and we've, we, you know, we've, we've ordered a bottle of wine and. This uh, waitress comes over and uh, Morgan decides to uh, talk in Italian to this waitress. Uh, attempt Uh-oh. to talk Italian to this waitress. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and she said, I'm not Italian. No, 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 no. She said, no, 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 no. I'm not Italian. He said, really? Where are you from? She said, I'm from Poland. He said, well, to welcome freedom. to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's let's finish the other story, though, because we had been out, I, I seriously, probably 12 hours of doing pub crawls. I, I have to tell you, Graham, to this day, I did. I felt so bad for a little bit when I found out what happened. But we all, we all finished drinking. We're all, uh, I think, at a train station. We start to go our separate ways. You get about 15 feet from home, and what happens? Oh, I fell over and broke a couple of fingers. So that, that was a sign of a good night. Did you trip over air, or was there something to actually trip over? Uh, it, well, I'm, I thought it was uh, one of the paving slabs, but I'm not sure. <laughs> They tend to trip you up, those paving yeah. slabs. I've, I've had problems with them yeah. in the past. <laughs> you had a problem getting in your house that night, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> did. What happened? What happened? My keys sailed off in my jacket pocket into central London after I'd got off the train. Oh, and geez. left his jacket on the train. <laughs> so not only was it the middle of the night and I was unsteady on my feet... My breath smelt of alcohol, my speech was slurred, and my eyes were glazed. I had to knock on the door to get the wife up to let me in. That's the worst part. That's the worst. I did consider sleeping on the doorstep at one point. Well, and then the fun... Does she still, does she still remind you of that night? No. Oh, my. Because uh, there's you know, been many other nights like that, know, Steve. You know, wives, they never bring it up again, do they? <laughs> And so I had this great picture of Alan and uh, Graham both leaning up basically against a lamppost. And then the time I sprung it on Graham, speaking of practical jokes, we were doing training in Orlando, Florida. We probably had, what, 300 people in the room? Rule number one is you never leave your computer unattended. Never leave your computer on the podium unattended. Graham left his computer unattended. And what do you think was inserted into his slide deck? Graham, shall we let the folks know? Yeah. Go on. It was just, uh, I was holding the lamppost up. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen the photograph, Graham. It would have fallen over. No, I was going to say, so we're in front of 300 cops and I'm sitting back and I'm just busting. I'm just waiting. And Graham is actually teaching. I don't remember exactly what the class was, but he gets into about his third slide and people start laughing and he doesn't know it till he turns around. But I've taken that same picture and put it in his slide deck. (laughs) 
And if you've seen the picture, Graham's glasses are like at a 45-degree angle on his face. He's holding the lamppost up, which would have fallen had it not been for his quick and insightful, decisive intervention, I would say. And Alan is acknowledging the results of uh, Graham's uh, accomplishments in that picture. (laughs) Yeah. Glad I've never been in that position. Oh, let's talk about Columbia, Murph. (laughs) No, let's not. (laughs) Thankfully, the statute of limitations have run out down there. Well, let's talk about you guys uh, post, uh, you know, post events and stuff. Um, Alan, how many years did you have on uh, New Scotland Yard, the yard before you called it quits, you retired? Well, I I was in the Met Police for 31 years, uh, and then I retired. Uh, And I went and worked for a telecom company for six years uh and then i'm working now for a digital forensics company doing training and you want to go ahead and mention them because we'll be glad to give them a shout out uh i'm working for a company called celebrite and if the folks don't know who celebrite is they're very go ahead steve i mean you know them too oh very very familiar celebrite here in the united states uh the equipment they make to extract information out of cell phones before the batteries go dead. It's, it's just been a phenomenal tool to have in the field. You guys have actually worked some very, I mean, Celebrite has been involved in some very high-profile FBI investigations, including terrorism cases and things like that. Uh, I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not denying it either. <laughs> you, you might think so. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Well, let's put it this way. There have been reports in the media of Celebrite's uh, involvement in some of these cases. We can acknowledge that, right? The media has reported it. The media have reported it, yeah. Yeah. Typical. It's a great company. It is. No complaints. uh, Now, uh, are you based, uh, is the company based out of the UK or the US or where are they based out of? Uh, They're effectively based out of Israel, out of Tel Aviv. Have you ever been to Tel Aviv? I have. I've been there too. They're in Jerusalem. Great, great place. In actual fact, I used to give a talk on the rise of British suicide bombers internationally. And uh, I had, as part of the, the talk, I had the crime scene photographs from Mike's place. And I arrived, the first time I went to Tel Aviv, it was in December in the winter, and it rained for about three days. So I kind of went to the office in the hotel, didn't go out. The last morning I was there, I was flying out in the afternoon and the sun came out. So I thought I'll walk along the beach just for, uh, and I walked along the beach and Mike's place at the time was still right next to the US embassy, which was still there. And I looked up and I saw Mike's place and I thought, no way. Uh, So I went and had a drink in there, but uh, that was quite interesting. I never thought having given that talk many years previously and uh, shown this crime scene photographs, it never occurred to me that I'd actually end up in the bar. Wow. It's like, you know, you talked about Mumbai. I retired yep. from the anti-terrorist branch, so I'll never get involved in any of this stuff again, and ended up in Mumbai uh, when the terrorist attack took place. Uh, I wasn't in one, fortunately, I wasn't in one of the hotels that was attacked, but we were there. Uh, when you say we, who were and, you with uh, at the time? Uh, I was working for Vodafone at the time, and I was with someone else from Vodafone. Oh, you were in Mumbai uh, when it happened? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, which was interesting. Well, that that was a that was um, when I was over in Pakistan. We had some serious concerns about. Well, you know, the ISI, the Inter Services uh, Intelligence Agency, actually helped create the Taliban, and there were a lot of issues with them and Lashkar e Taiba, which is one of the main the, the main terrorist group which perpetrated the yeah. Mumbai attack, and they were being controlled out of their controller was actually I think operating off of encrypted voice comms 
back to um, uh, back to Pakistan at that time. Yeah. How about you, Graham? So when when uh, how long were you with the uh, London Met before you decided to retire? And I know that you retired, but you kind of came back, right? Um, I retired um, in eighteen, so I did thirty eight years with the Met. So I did uh, thirty years as a cop, and then I went back then as uh, um, as a lab manager um, for um, the digital forensic lab, one of four or five managers in the office. Was that as a civilian position, or were you still uh, a sworn police officer at that time? Uh, what do you call it over there? Double dipping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I had a double. I had a double dip. <laughs> so, Graham, what was the staff on the high tech unit? What number oh. was it when you left? If you include the viewers, because we got a viewing section, probably 120 people on that floor now. And that was from yeah. five to seven when you folks yeah. originally yeah. got there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what does that what does that just tell you about the value of of the devices and uh, you know how much the technology has changed? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the expansion that everybody you wear a computer on your wrist now. You will you carry it in your pocket on your phone? The, the, the biggest the biggest problem, Steve, is analyzing the stuff you find, and is and the, the, right. the quicker you can analyze it, the better. So there's we have a number of. Uh, programs uh, that were used by the viewers so we would image something and do a do a look at it and then it would go to uh, our viewing unit who would then dice it up and look at certain parts and um, we use um, hash sets so any document that's been in before you were able to filter it out by running a hash set uh, across across the the drive that we sent to him, so again narrowing down the work, but um, the majority of stuff needed to be viewed. Like Alan Alan talked about the gas limo project, um, there was something found embedded in some photographs and a video, uh, so a, any any video that comes in is watched full length just to see if there's anything buried inside it. Um, obviously, things have changed now where we have um, a, a massive hash database that we can run across this stuff, but it still leaves millions of files to be viewed. Um, oh, yeah. And, and for the folks that are wondering what a hash is, I mean, it, basically, you apply a mathematical a formula to a file. It gives it a very unique number. And that's why, that's why they actually do child pornography investigations. Rather than having to look at things all the time, you can run these this known data set against it. And when you find it, you now have evidence that has been admitted prior in court and validated as child pornography. And now you can use those types of things. So, um, because now we're talking about, like you said, it's the difference between looking in a shoebox and looking in a warehouse. That's how, but that's the difference of what it's changed. Steve, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask, are you still seeing uh, steganography in use where they hide photographs inside of pictures? So I, everybody goes on about steganography. In, in, in all my time, uh, uh, well, whether we didn't find it, but um, uh, I, I've, never, I've never come across it. Um, so, uh, and I don't know. You know, you think about encrypted apps now, communication apps. Why would you use steganography? Yeah, you could use Telegram uh, or Signal uh, or something like that. Uh, and I think steganography is, a, for people who don't know, it's just a method of embedding text into a, an image file. Uh, but we never come, we never came across it. We came across encrypted containers, TrueCrypt, and things like that. 
uh, but not steganography. And, and the job you talked about, Alan, the gas limo, um, the the photographs that were taken of the heliport in New York, um, somebody had yeah. edited them with Photoshop, and and they they put yeah. into the bottom, oh, the chain link fence at this position is broken. So they were they were yeah. hiding, um, it, yeah. but easy, easily. I'm putting in there that they weren't searched before they got on the aircraft on the helicopter. You could very easily take a knife on board and stuff like that. It was all, uh, but it wasn't steganography. That was that was kind of Photoshop stuff, uh, and the stuff they did around uh, around Wall Street. Uh, they'd actually, you know, when you watch the video, they put. Uh, they put like closed captions on the video talking about the security and where the cameras are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it was early days, but it wasn't particularly clever. Yeah, good evidentially, but not clever from their point of view. Uh, and he, I always say this guy pleaded guilty in the UK, which is unusual. Most terrorist trials, they plead not guilty. And to this day, I'm convinced the reason he pleaded guilty, because if he had pleaded not guilty and for some reason got... Uh, what I would consider a perverse decision from the jury and got found not guilty, the Americans would have scooped him up. And if he'd gone to America, he'd, he'd have never seen the light he of day He might have again. been visiting Gitmo. Uh, you never know. Club Gitmo. He, well, no, he'd have, just, <laughs> he'd have just ended up in uh, in a Supermax for 250 years. Like uh, like El Chapo, which we have an episode coming up on. Yeah. yeah. Or, a, what they call ADX, the rich... Administrative de- Detention Facility in Florence, Colorado. Yeah. That's where the Unabomber yeah, is. is. That's where uh, Richard, Reed, Richard is. Reed is. Terry Nichols, one of the Oklahoma City yeah. bombers. And I love it over there because you sentenced them to 250 years in prison and they appeal saying that that's too long and it's an, oppre- it's, it's a, an oppressive period of time. So they go, yeah, we agree with you. We're going to reduce it to 180 years. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they'll find the fountain of youth. You know, maybe they can use some uh, of your cosmetics, uh, yeah, Graham, you know, to stay yeah. you, looking youthful. <laughs> Richard Reed... There was another party to that conspiracy who was arrested about four or five years later and uh, they recovered the device in his wardrobe at home. He admitted it all, went to court and pleaded guilty. He got sentenced to, I think, 14 years in prison and he's out now. Um, But if he'd been arrested in the States, he'd have never seen the light of day ever again. And I've always said, when you think about it, shoe bombers, they're always going to come in pairs, aren't they? <laughs> you and Morgan. That, now I know why you two guys like each other. Your jokes <laughs> suck. Your jokes just suck. That's not a joke. <laughs> shoe bomber. Going to get a pair of them. Graham, Graham, hey, Graham, why do we uh, hang out with I, these guys? I don't, I really don't know. Because oh, normally <laughs> I buy the beer when we get together. I buy the drinks. Ooh. Well, Alan doesn't buy the drinks, the, I can uh, tell you that. <laughs> Oh, we'll there have you to go. Fix that. Well, hey, speaking of drinking, we got to close out. Let's close this out. But there's a couple Guinness stories I want to get to real quick. And Graham, one of them was you. You were prevented from having a, a pint of Guinness uh, because of an ill son. Yeah. What happened? We did the Guinness tour, and I'd been in I'd been in Dublin a few days. I went over um, with a mate, and we took our son was probably um, six months old. So we'd uh, he'd arranged the Guinness store. We pushed my son around the Guinness store, and as we're going round, he's starting typical children. He's starting to moan and groan a little bit, and um, eventually we get to the where you get your free pint of Guinness at or half a Guinness at the end of the tour. 
and I've just got my mouth around the glass and my wife says to me, I'm sure that, <laughs> that Daniel is not very well. And uh, we look at Daniel and he's got, he's, he is burning up. And within half an hour, I'm in Dublin's Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and my pint of Guinness is still sat on the bar in the uh, in the tour, the end of the tour room, and uh, we're uh, we're feeding my son ice cream to bring his temperature down. So I've never forgiven him for that. Oh. <laughs> well, now, now, Alan, did you have, was it you, Steve, or was it you, Alan, that had one about the guy who waited around for the Americans to drink and they didn't like it? Oh, yeah, no. That's Alan. Okay. Uh, I was working at Vodafone, and I ended up in Ireland working, and it was when the volcano in Iceland went bang, and I couldn't get back. So they said to me, "What are you?" and I'd been to Dublin a few times working, but I'd never seen the city. And... Uh, they said, what are you going to do tomorrow then, Al? Are you going to come in the office? I said, no, I'm not actually. I'm going to actually do a little tour of Dublin, see the place. So I went to the Guinness Brewery and I buy my 15 euro entry thing. And I kind of thought it was a bit disney So I did a couple of the floors and then I got in the lift to go up to the bar because there's a bar on the roof where you get your free, well, it's not a free pint of Guinness. It's a pint of Guinness included in your 15 euro entry fee. So I had my pint of Guinness, and I thought the bar was really the guy who thought of putting a platform on top of the building with a 360-degree view of Dublin was fantastic. Uh, so I had my pint of Guinness, and uh, I go back to the office the following day, and they said, what do you think? And I said, oh, yeah, it's okay. And uh, The guy who was running the unit at the time was from my, my team in the UK, and he was out there temporarily, and I said, I'm you know i went around a couple of floors and then i went up to the bar and had the pint of guinness and i stood at the bar and thinking 15 euros this is the most expensive guinness i've ever drunk and he said uh, uh i went with old jim who's sitting in the corner old jim is an ex-garda detective which is ireland and i'm not going to try yeah. i'm not going to try and do an irish accent but anyway uh he said, I went with old Jim. Old Jim got straight in the lift and went straight upstairs. He said, I did a couple of floors. I joined him and I stood at the bar with old Jim and I said, I'd got my pint of Guinness. He said, 15 euros. This is the most expensive pint of Guinness I've ever had. And he said, old Jim looked at me and said, no, 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 no. You've got to know what you're doing up here. You wait until the young American tourists come up here who don't drink and they go, oh, Guinness. Oh, no, I'll have a Coke, please. He said, and then you polish them off. He said, I'm on the fifth already. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, That's experience uh, there. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But uh, one of the things I did do, which was uh, the, the guy from my team who was over there, his daughter had been to visit and she was studying history at university. And she'd done a little bit of research. If you ever go back to Dublin, the 1916 Rebellion Walking Tour, if they still do it, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and, and I rock up and uh, we all introduce ourselves. The guy who runs it is a serious historian and a committed Republican as well. And everybody introduces themselves. And there's me. There's, a, a, there's an American family, mum and dad and two young sons, an Australian couple, an Irish teacher with some sixth form students doing it for history, and me, the Brit. <laughs> and I think, ah, oh, this is not going to end well, is it? And actually, <laughs> I, I, they, they, he left me alone, I'm quite sure, because I was on my own, if, if there'd be more than one of us. But I don't know if you've ever been to Ireland and heard the expression they use, which is feck. They I've been there, but I haven't heard that. Feck. 
which they use all the time, they say, what the feck is going on? And you'll hear it used in Parliament, and it's not considered to be a swear word. It's like F-E-C-K? Yeah. F-E-C-K, feck. It's not considered to be a swear word. Uh, And this guy is doing this tour, and at one point he says something and uses the word feck. And mum and dad Americans look quite taken aback, and the kids are looking at him. (laughs) And he said, no, 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 I have to explain this. He said, feck is a word in Irish that is not a swear word. It's used and it's not swearing. It replaces a swear word. (laughs) Which is their kind of logic. And then he looks at the kids and says, but don't go to school on Monday and say we had a feck of a time in Dublin. (laughs) I just love the Irish. I love that mentality, you know. It's not a swear word. It's a word... That replaces the swear word. That's like we might use frick over here. Yeah. yeah. Or the effing, you know, what the F yeah. is going on. But it's like, yeah, no. it's like shite for shit. I've always seen that. It's like shite, S I T E. I'm going, I never understood that. Can mm. you guys explain it? I mean, this is one of the great mysteries of life. Just, 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 know, just, another, know. Oh. just another way of saying shit. You know, it, it, yeah. it just comes up in conversations <laughs> now and again. Yeah. One of the words I've never understood you guys use is bugger. Bugger. Just, just, What's that? Yeah, bugger. bugger. Oh, bugger. 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 Yeah. Bugger. Yeah. Well, bugger yeah. me. Oh, are you gonna tell me? <laughs> yeah. Are you gonna tell me? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know the origin of it. Is it like frick? Is uh, it like frick me? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> no. No. Well, you know what bugger is, don't you? No, criminal buggery. Yes, we know what that is. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably an old naval expression. Yeah, yeah it probably is. I would yeah. say so, yes. <laughs> probably need to refer to Graham from his time before the mast when he had his, com- if he had his cosmetics on. <laughs> See? Oh, man. <laughs> Don't drop your soap in well, the shower. Oh, <laughs> not especially around the Merchant Marines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, guys, this has been great. Um, first of all, I want to th- it's been great because you guys are friends, but thank you, as always. This is me saluting you. The folks can't see it. Thank you for what you guys did and for your service. You guys were involved in an awful lot of stuff, and I've always appreciated how the reciprocation has gone between how coppers treat each other, especially, uh, like I said, 2000, I met one of your fellow uh, friends from there, Kevin Ives, over at New Scotland Yard. He was in the organized crime branch, I think. And we were over there and uh, just, he actually took me out to a pub about a block and a half from New Scotland Yard, the headquarters there. We had a pint, my first pint of Guinness ever. And it was, took five minutes to pour, but it was, uh, it was great. But you know, you guys have always been class acts. You've always been nice. And I will tell you, you have the best police procedural shows on TV. I I was watching another one last night and you told me, I I watched the first season of Happy Valley and it's like, just, uh, I mean, just great stuff because, you know, it's all plot driven. Uh, I, you know, I'm an American. I, I, we grew up that way, but it's nice having a police show and a plot show that isn't always about somebody blowing stuff up and shooting guns all the time. And it's really about, it's like prime suspect with, um. Uh, Helen Mirren, you know, it's just just the plot driven, just the, you know, thinking through stuff, creating the the good complex stories that make you think about stuff. So, uh, if nothing else, kudos to you guys, but kudos to uh, you know the police procedurals. I enjoy them. Yeah, and and I'd like to say thank you also, guys, because it's been an honor to get to know you. Uh, it's phenomenal hearing these cases, uh, the excellent law enforcement investigative work that was done. 
But hearing some of the history, too, here between the agencies, the difference, uh, I've learned things uh, during this interview that I never knew about you guys. And, uh, you know, we, we might like to, to bust a, what we call it busting balls with each other here. That's just part of the law enforcement culture worldwide. But uh, honored to be here with you. So thank you for your service. Good. Thank you, gents. Okay, take care. Take nice care. Okay. okay, hang on, oh. folks. And you guys, you'll find this on there. We'll, we'll put some additional information on this. Um, stay tuned, because this, this is definitely going to be a two, if not a three-parter. So we'll let you guys know when the show gets done. But again, thanks to Alan, Detective Sergeant Alan Thomas, Detective Constable Graham Burridge, New Scotland Yard, the famed, fabled New Scotland Yard. It's been great to have you guys on. And hopefully, get this COVID stuff done. I plan on making a trip over to London. We'll do another pub crawl. What do you say, HCN? Yeah. That'll do for me. I'm not as young as I used to be. That's the problem. I can't take it. Well, like we'll, start, yeah. we'll start drinking earlier then, yeah. Graham. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Hey, everybody. Man, Steve's talk about intense. I mean... Getting into the discussion of the historical aspects behind the IRA, the provisional IRA, because they're actually two different things. Understanding the number of bombings that the UK, that the uh, New Scotland Yard had re had responded to, uh, and things like that. I mean, it just you know, you think about this, and you think about nobody gets paid enough to do this kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, and, and our stories that we bring across to you, there's so many innocent people that get hit, uh, injured in these stories and maimed and murdered. Uh, and you look at the terrorist activities going on over there. And just to, to Alan and Graham, you know, my personal thank you for your service to your country, because we all benefit from what you guys do over there. It's kind of like, you know, you're our you're our little wall before that terrorism gets to us. Uh, thank you for your courage, your dedication to your service. It was a, it was a real honor. Yeah, I'm sorry that you had to work with uh, Morgan at some point in your career, but we'll try and get over that. But it was truly an honor to meet you guys. Yeah, uh, now guys, it it was uh, and uh, Alan has actually come over to the United States a couple times. I've taken him out for real burgers over here in Leesburg at Tuscarora Mill. He doesn't. <laughs> they don't get real beef apparently in England, or not the good kind. So I brought him out. What are they eating over there? I've eaten burgers over there. What was it? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no, it's, well, it's not the good kind of beef, but anyway, but hey, guys, but anyway, if you like what you heard, do us a big favor. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Hit that five stars. Again, it's magic. It's Disney. Um, it's Walt Disney all over. We just don't know how the magic works. We just know that it does. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for all of our stuff. Hit us up on Patreon. I'm telling you, Patreon is where it's happening. We've got episode three coming out. We'll be out shortly. We've got um, our case of the month coming out. <clears throat> Depending on what level you're at, you're going to get access to a ton of content. Uh, PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. And hit us up on our socials, uh, Facebook and Instagram. It's Game of Crimes Podcast. Twitter, we're Game of Crimes. Follow us. Just have fun, right, Steve? Just have fun, you players. Absolutely. We might be old, but you know we still like to have a good time. And, and What's uh, this we stuff? What do you got in your pocket? <laughs> I'm looking at you on the screen. I know you're freaking old. You just, you know, you married a much younger woman. That's it. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, make sure you follow us on there. And guys, thank you for playing the biggest game of all, the Game of Crimes. See you next week. 